Welcome to a special presentation of Nebraska Farmcast, a podcast with essential information for essential decisions from the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. The Nebraska Extension Farm and Ranch Management Team in the Department of Agricultural Economics is dedicated to providing timely news, analysis, decision tools, and publications for Nebraska agricultural decision makers. Each week, our team brings you essential information for your essential decisions in live webinars covering a diverse array of farm and ranch management topics presented by experts from the university, from across the state, and from around the country. This series of podcasts offers audio from these webinars so you can learn on the go. To find a complete archive of all webinars, register for upcoming sessions, and discover more resources, visit the Farm and Ranch Management website at farm.unl.edu. everyone for joining. I'm Jessica Groskoff, an agricultural economist and the director of the Nebraska Women in Agriculture program at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. Today is a part of a weekly series of webinars produced by our farm and ranch management extension team. Find a complete schedule of upcoming and past recordings on our website at farm.unl.edu. Just a reminder, the Nebraska Rural Response Hotline remains a great resource for ag professionals across the state, providing mental health counseling, information regarding legal assistance, financial clinics, mediation, and more. The hotline's toll-free number is 1-800-464-0258. Resources related to stress and wellness can also be found at ruralwellness.unl.edu. For today's webinar, we have with us Nathan Kaufman. On the verge of disaster one year ago, many segments of the U.S. agricultural economy have rebounded to new heights. Supported by robust global demand, reopening economies, and tight supplies, the prices of major U.S. crops have touched their highest level in nearly a decade. Although significant risk remains, the outlook for U.S. agriculture for the months ahead is strong. To tell us more about this, we are pleased to welcome Nathan Kaufman, Omaha Branch Manager and Vice President Economist with the Federal Reserve Bank of Kansas City. As the bank's lead economist and representative in Nebraska, Nathan provides strategic direction and oversight for the Omaha Branch, regional research, economic outreach throughout the state. He is the Kansas City Fed's principal expert in agricultural economics and the lead voice on the ag economy throughout the state and the seven state region of the 10th Federal Reserve District. Throughout today's webinar, you will have the opportunity to ask questions of Nathan. We ask that you do that via the chat or the Q&A, which should be at the bottom of your screen. Nathan, thank you for joining us. Well, thank you, Jessica, and I appreciate the invitation to participate again. Um, As I've been saying for the past year, I'd Greatly prefer to be in person for these sorts of events, but also appreciate the opportunity to be able to connect for these online. Um, so I'll, I'll get started here in just a second and I'll, I'll share my, I'll attempt to share my screen uh, to get going here. Um, and as I'm doing that, just spend a quick minute describing, um, you know, for those of you that may not be familiar why this is an area that we focus on a lot at the Federal Reserve Bank of Kansas City. Uh, We of course cover seven states in the middle of the country at the Kansas City Fed. 
We have a branch office in Omaha that serves for the state of Nebraska, and that's where I'm located. But to a significant extent, we're also providing input as it relates to developments in agriculture more broadly nationally as it relates to concerns at, at the Federal Reserve. Um, so we have a lot of banks also that lend to agriculture in our region. We've got a lot of industries that depend both directly and indirectly on ag production. And so this remains a, a key focus area for us at the, at the Kansas City Fed and, and the Omaha branch in particular. So I've, I've titled my, my presentation this morning as an economic recovery in, in US agriculture. And um, I've had some opportunities to interact through webinars uh, such as this one in, in the past year or so to a, a significant extent. And, and the course of the conversation has changed pretty dramatically over the course of that time. And so I wanna try to walk through a little bit how things have changed to what extent and why um, I think my, my hope is to be able to convince you that, that if we were discussing conditions a year ago at this time, it would have looked very, very different. And we've seen um, conditions really change uh, dramatically in the past several months. And I'll, I'll try to talk through some of that, um, explain maybe how we see conditions going forward and then make sure, I wanna make sure to leave some time at the end for questions. We do really value the questions that come in because it gives us a better way of, of thinking about what sorts of topics we want to be better tuned into. So just to get started, I'll, I'll share a couple quick bullet points that will give a sense of what the major themes are for this morning. And the first is, and, and really can't be overemphasized enough, I think that a rapid increase in corn and soybean prices that really began probably last August or September, it continued through the end of the year, and it's even accelerated in the first several months of 2021 has been, I would call it as a primary contributor to the strong recovery in, in agriculture. I know that that's not indicative of every segment of US agriculture, um, but certainly as those crops represent a, a major portion of um, just the, the general state of production in agriculture, that's been a, a significant presence. Uh, there are some industries that I would say, such as crops, for example, that are positioned better than others. It's worth recognizing also significant risks. We've been talking, obviously, about the pandemic of the past year, but other economic developments related to either the pandemic and, and the course of the pandemic or now the reopening that's been underway from the pandemic are things that are going to be worth uh, sharing a little bit more information on, and I'll, I'll end with some of that. So I want to I want to start just by building a little bit of context that began before the pandemic as a way to set the stage for where we are right now because I think that this is this is important just as as context. Um, if we were talking at the beginning of 2020 before the the pandemic, uh, we would have been describing agriculture at that time as being in the midst of a prolonged downturn. So for the better part of six or seven years, uh, profits in agriculture, generally speaking, were fairly low at a time when the broader US economy was in the midst of its longest economic expansion on record. There are a number of ways that I could potentially try to show this. I've chosen just two very simple charts to illustrate it. The first is the one that you see on the left, which represents agricultural prices. Uh, as a ratio of prices received relative to prices paid. So you could think about this simply as a, as a proxy for profit margins in agriculture. Uh, the lower the number there that you see in that chart, the lower the profits. Um, in, in contrast, the higher the number that would re represent strong profit margins. And you can see that that number had generally been trending lower 
since the what we had previously been calling the boom years in agriculture from about 2010 to 2013. At the same time, the chart that you see on the right hand side shows a pretty steady trend upward that we had been following in the broader US economy, this showing just a measure of real GDP in levels. And you can see in, in, in that that it was it was a pretty straight line going forward and, and really no reason to expect for the most part in January of last year that we would see anything different in 2020. Average annual growth was about 2% and most forecasters were suggesting, I think, for the broader economy that we would see something pretty similar during the course of 2020. Uh, and again, before we had started to see problems with, uh, with COVID-19. We of course know that that's not how things played out. And in the ensuing months, there were some very severe challenges that, that hit agriculture. I, I, I don't have time to go into all of those, but I, I picked three just to illustrate where things were at this time, roughly last year. And, and then I'll use that as some context again for describing how significantly things have changed. As the pandemic began int intensifying, there were a couple of specific things that began affecting agriculture to a significant extent. Um, we all remember last year when many of the meat packing plants around the country were um, being affected by COVID-19 and started to have some positive tests emerging and were needing to, to, to shut down temporarily. What that led to was essentially a bottleneck in the supply chain for products. And, and it wasn't just meat packing plants. There were a number of other places where we were seeing significant disruptions with supply chains. The chart on the left simply shows meat production indexed to 2019 to give a sense of what had been happening last April and May. At one point, um, beef and, and pork processing facilities nationally were operating at about 60% capacity. Um, this chart simply shows a monthly number, so it's a bit higher than that when it's averaged out. But at its worst, uh, about 40% of production was, was offline, so to speak. So that had significant implications for prices um, both retail prices, but also for prices that uh, ag producers were selling, uh, selling animals at. So uh, that was something that had an enormous impact in April and May of last year. People will also remember that with the disruptions and the, uh, the, the directives and closures of businesses, we started to see a, a massive shift in terms of how consumers were buying products. The chart in the middle illustrates, for example, the spending on food, both at home and away from home during those initial months of the pandemic, with restaurants and other foods, food service establishments closed. Many households were no longer buying products at those locations, but were buying products at grocery stores and supermarkets, which are very, very different sorts of products. And so just the nature of the disruptions that were felt by way of how households were, were buying their product was also a significant, um, a significant change relative to before the pandemic and, and had implications for prices and demand for various products. One of the other uh, indicators that we were tracking at the time was also ethanol production. So with people traveling far less than what they were in the months prior to the pandemic, ethanol production was off by about 50% at its worst. Um, it's since recovered uh, for the most part just slightly less than where it had been before the pandemic. But with corn being the primary input to ethanol production, this had a, a tremendous effect also on, on agriculture just by way of one other factor driving demand for, for products. So as you might imagine, all of these uh, factors and, and probably some others coalesced to ultimately result in a substantial decline in ag commodity prices from 
the beginning of 2020 until April and May of that year, uh, most ag commodity prices had been declining by anywhere between 15 to 25, even 30% in the case of milk. Uh, it was a little bit different market for wheat. I won't go into those details specifically, but suffice to say that for the, for the most part, um, some of the challenges all connected to the pandemic were driving prices substantially lower than what they had been um, in January of last year. At this point, I'm going to fast forward about six to nine months, and I know that there was a lot that obviously transpired during that time, but I want to get to the point where I want to, I want to share a little bit more about some of the more recent information and what things look like going forward. Um, we've, we've seen since April of last year and over the course of, of the past nine to 12 months, a substantial rebound in, in ag commodity prices, um, maybe even far more than what could have been envisioned in April or May of last year when um, most were looking at the situation as a significant crisis in agriculture. In fact, what we're now seeing with the data that's, that's available for April and, and even now through, through the middle of May is corn prices that are about 70% higher than what they would have been in January of 2019 as a baseline. Soybeans, relatively similar, strong increases in hog prices, increases in milk prices, wheat notably higher than what it would have been a couple of years ago. Cattle prices still relatively low, and I will get into that one a little bit more toward the end. Uh, but in general, what I want to share from this chart is simply the observation that commodity prices have rebounded in a dramatic sense, uh, again, reflecting back on, on the past year. It's worth noting, and I won't go into a lot of detail on this slide either, that part of the support for agriculture, more generally speaking, has come not just from the increase in commodity prices, but also the support from government payments. Last year, government payments to the farm sector represented about 40% or so of net farm income um, in dollars would have been the highest uh, on record as shown in this chart going back to, to the 1930s. There's maybe an expectation that these this level of government payments won't persist into 2021 or, or beyond, but at least for the time being, uh, I'll come back to this as a reference because this has been a major contributor in terms of some of the improvement that we've seen in overall farm income and just generally speaking how farmers are positioned financially. I want to reiterate though the the scale of increase in corn and soybean prices and try to put some of this into perspective. Many people in, that are involved in agriculture will remember 2008 and 2009, the run-up in prices, it generally persisted after a brief pullback in 2009. It persisted in, in the following two, three years in what many will refer to as maybe the best years ever in agriculture or a level of prices that most farmers would only see once in their lifetime. Um, something along those lines that drove substantial gains in, in agriculture and improvements in farmland values and credit conditions and other things. The reality has been that over the course of the past year, just to underscore how significant some of these price increases have been, is that the path of price increases actually looks very similar today relative to what it did during that, that boom, those boom years of 2007 and 2008. And so I'll, I'll try to, to step through what these charts show. It's really quite simple. And it's the same picture for both corn and soybeans. If we take current prices for corn and just treat that as an index of 100, and then back into that, what the path of prices has looked like over the previous 250 trading days, in this case for corn, 
This is the picture that you see on the left-hand side, and it actually resembles something that's very, very similar to 2007 and 2008, the, the run-up that, again, was maybe at that time considered to be a, a once-in-a-lifetime type of occurrence. And it's been similar for soybeans. So what this chart simply shows is that prices have more than doubled uh, in, in the case of both of these commodity, in these commodity markets, which really can't be overemphasized in terms of what that means for the recovery in agriculture. So I show these charts just a way of put it, as a way of putting it into context that the run-up that we've seen over the course of the past year very much has resembled the run-up, at least in prices, very different dynamics, understandably, but very similar to the run-up that we would have seen in prices in 2007 and 2008. There have been a couple of primary reasons for this. Some of it's connected to obviously markets. There may be uh, other supply and demand factors at play and other market dynamics that are, that are contributing as well. I will highlight just two at a very, very high level from a supply and demand perspective. The first is from a demand perspective, and we know that China has been significant for a long time in agricultural markets. We may recall, though, uh, a couple of years ago in 2018 and 19, we would have been talking about on a pretty persistent basis, the trade disruptions and tariff disputes with China as having been a major detractor from uh, the strength in commodity prices at that time. 2019, as you see in the chart on the left, was a substantial decline in ag exports to China, and it was relatively flat to the rest of the world on top of that. In early 2020, as the pandemic began, we were not seeing strong exports to China or to the rest of the world. And again, some of this just simply reflecting the concerns of the pandemic at the time. Beginning in about July last year, though, we started to see some significant orders being placed from China, and that strength has persisted into the early months of 2021. And again, this is, this is obviously very substantial in terms of the impact that it's had on commodity prices because of it being a key demand driver in addition to just simply the pure magnitude of ag exports going to China. There's a number of reasons potentially for this. One of those is simply the reopening of China's economy and recovery from COVID. This is happening in other places. And so you also do see a pickup in ag exports to other parts of the world in addition to the large increases in China. Part of this is probably also due to uh, African swine fever and the recovery and rebuilding of herds in China that require then more in the way of products to help to, to support that recovery. So a couple of things probably combining at the same time, but ultimately resulting in substantial increases in export to China. The supply picture has also been um, a contributing factor to the increase in prices, as we all know. And I'm not gonna go into a lot of details here either, but just wanted to show what this looks like at a high level. One of the ways that we often describe the supply picture for key ag products is to consider a measure of inventories for corn, soybeans, and wheat, for example. And what you can see from this chart is that those inventories measured as a stocks to use ratio are substantially lower for all three of these major products in 2020 relative to where we would have been as a five-year average in the preceding five years, particularly for soybeans, but, but even for corn, you can see a, a significant decline there. So this combines both developments in terms of global production, um, of course, U.S. production, together with demand and use consumption for those products, just to give a high-level indicator of how substantially different inventories today are relative to where we would have been in the previous five years. 
One of the things that's been happening along with this, going back to the comment that I made about households um, changing their, their buying habits as it relates to food products, is that with this, we've started to see a pickup in food price inflation. You may remember last time in May and June, we were seeing sharp increases in retail meat products, in the, in the price of retail meat products, specifically for beef and pork, reflecting some of the disruptions that would have occurred along with, with COVID-19 at that time. Um, in the United States, we're still seeing food price inflation higher than what it would have been in the previous few years, but it's come back a bit from where it would have been last year at this time. That's not necessarily been the case globally though. And, and in fact, we're still seeing large increases in food price inflation on a global scale. This matters because a number of countries may still be thinking about what they need to do to reconcile their concerns about food security in, in the wake of the pandemic. Um, many people will be familiar with a saying of, of just-in-time delivery and supply chains that have adapted to a just-in-time type of, of uh, process. In the wake of the pandemic, it could be possible that there are more businesses, more countries that are thinking about what might be needed to preserve stability on a more persistent basis, given some of the significance of the pandemic, given the significance that you're seeing of increases in food price inflation, uh, those, of, those of you that might remember the 2008 commodity price increases will remember that in a number of developing countries at that time, there would have been even food price riots, riots connected to food prices in demonstration of some of the severity of, of food prices at, at that time. Not to suggest that this is the same environment, but I think that it is worth monitoring just as uh, something to keep in mind as it relates to global demand for food products in line with some of the things that we've been seeing in China in terms of increases in export activity. So as we talk about some of the increases in commodity prices, the increases in income, uh, government payments that have contributed to that, the, the next thing that we follow quite uh, directly as it relates to the Kansas City Fed, and, and partly because we do connect with a lot of financial institutions in our region, is to think about what that's meant in terms of the financial position of farm borrowers. We had been following for, you know, again, six, seven years, what we would have been describing as a steady decline in credit conditions in agriculture, where um, there was maybe a steady increase in bankruptcies and in, in loan delinquencies, and just generally speaking, credit stress that was evolving on the basis of um, persistently low prices and profit margins. That has also reversed course in a pretty dramatic fashion. And I'll actually start with the right-hand chart on this slide. One of the first things that we started seeing in, I would say the late third quarter of 2020 into the fourth quarter, and it's persisted into the first quarter of 2021 is a pretty dramatic improvement in uh, repayment rates. So just simply the capacity for farm borrowers to repay loans and maintain a strong financial position. Um, this chart simply shows that repayment rates in the seven states that we cover are quite a bit higher than what they would have been last year. In this chart, anything above 100 simply indicates better than a year ago. And so you can see that that's a, a stark contrast relative to where we had been for the better part of five or six years where repayment rates were actually steadily declining from one year to the next. The other thing that you've seen keeping in line with credit conditions is the developments in farm real estate. When the crisis began last March and April, uh, there was maybe an expectation that we would see some decline in farm real estate values. 
I would even go one step further that there was an expectation that we would see broad declines in real estate values, not just in agriculture, but in other segments of the market. And the reality is that we've actually been seeing a pretty steady increase. And the most recent data shows one of the strongest increases that we've seen since 2013 as it relates to farm real estate values. In the region that we cover, this has been an increase of about 8%, but I will say that I've heard anecdotes of anywhere between 10 and 20% increases in, in farm real estate values, reflecting strong incomes from a year ago that were supported by government payments, but more recently, the, the fundamental increases in commodity prices and, and cash generation by, by farms across the region. So I wanna shift gears here, kind of talk, having talked a little bit about the dramatic improvement in farm economics, credit conditions, and that being supported by significant changes in both supply and demand, to now talking more about what some of the risks might be and, and pull it back just a little bit to reflect more on the nature of the pandemic from a macroeconomic perspective, because I think that these are these will be some of the things, obviously they've been important for the past year, but they will be uh, increasingly important, I think, in terms of how we see conditions play out in agriculture going forward. So the first is, is reflecting back on one of my earlier sides, slides to recognize that um, at the beginning of 2020, most major economies were expected to continue growing roughly at the pace that they had been in the preceding years. So that's, that's shown in the far left bar of this chart for each region um, in dark blue. In the United States, it was about 2% expected for 2020. In April of 2020, you can see, again, most places were expected to be contracting sharply. China was an exception, um, but growth even there was much slower. Uh, if you fast forward to then seeing how economic growth played out for 2020 overall, it's a bit of a mixed picture. In the US, for example, it actually turned out that growth was not as bad as what it was imagined to be in April of last year. Whereas in other places like the EU, Japan, and in the UK, you can see that 2020 ended up being worse from an economic output perspective than what was envisioned uh, a year ago. Going forward though, this just emphasizes how significant um, some of this, this change has been and, and what we're now in the middle of, of a transition with reopening of, of economies. The US is expected to grow at one of its fastest pace, paces in many years as, as other countries are with, re, with economies reopening and, and consumers beginning to spend a little bit more on a broader range of products uh, and just generally seeing increases in economic activity so this obviously is something that's going to have significant impacts across every industry of the economy and ag would not be immune from that. So thinking about how restaurants reopen, how schools get back into session, how you know, other entities begin returning to something that might've represented a more normal environment. To give just a couple of, of data points to this to support it, uh, there are a number of charts that I could potentially show just to highlight some of the increases in economic activity. I pulled a couple of these that represent on one side um, manufacturing and goods production and on the other side services. We know that services was generally the, the sector of our economy that was affected most significantly, whereas manufacturing was maybe a bit less because consumers continue to buy products in, in other forms online and otherwise. If you look at the left-hand chart though of this slide, you're gonna notice a couple things. So one is um, across most major economies, a significant increase in manufacturing activity, um, this just being a broad index to represent manufacturing in those regions. 
that began to take hold about the middle of last year. China's obviously started a little bit earlier because the pandemic there had started earlier. What you're seeing though now is, is actually optimism from the manufacturing sector that is at its highest point that it's been in a very long time. And, and this, is, this is true, not just in our region in the Kansas City Fed, it's true nationally. And even as you move into other regions such as the Euro area, you're going to see similar indicators that, that would suggest a very strong um, sense of optimism for the manufacturing sector. Again, China's had started a little bit earlier and pulled back uh, just because the, the timing has been different in the pandemic. At the same time, the right-hand chart shows that you're also seeing more of a recovery in some of the services industries that would have been effect most, affected most significantly during the pandemic. So we know, for example, that restaurants being closed and flights being drastically reduced, that essentially you were looking at a total collapse in those industries in March and April of last year. We're at a point now where it's actually returned back to anywhere between 20 to 30% closer to, it's only 20 to 30% less than what it was prior to the pandemic. Um, and even more recent data would probably show something quite a bit stronger than this as some of the, the vaccination trends start to take hold. So the expectation here is with a strong manufacturing sector and a recovery in services industries, that that's one of the things that's in aggregate fueling expectations for a strong economic recovery in, in most parts of the world. That, that, that recovery though is not without disruption. And I wanna spend a couple minutes talking about um, inflation because this has been an increasing source of um, consternation among households and businesses. And many of the anecdotes that we receive at the Fed tie into recent developments in inflation. Many of you may know that the Fed has a stated goal for inflation at 2%. And so uh, we, we typically um, are, are looking at various measures of inflation, but wanna see that inflation is generally staying around that 2% benchmark. Um, for the most part, inflation had been running lower than 2% for, for years prior to the pandemic. We're now starting to see substantial price pressures in, in various segments of the economy. I'm sure everyone is familiar with increases in things like lumber prices and, and housing prices. And uh, if you're trying to buy a used car or other segments of the economy where the increases in prices have been, have been fairly pronounced. And so what this chart shows is that while some of the aggregate measures that we would refer to as uh, inflation, um, for example, core PCE, which is just a technical way of saying headline inflation, but excluding food and energy, has been still around that 2% benchmark. But if you look at the inflation measure, for example, on the good side of things, that has increased pretty dramatically from where it was a year ago. Um, and again, this is only through March. And so data through April, April would show something even a bit higher. Um, this is going to be something important to track because it has implications for obviously how the Federal Reserve is positioned in terms of policy, but also how other markets are positioned to be able to respond on the basis of you know, profitability uh, with inflation being a key part of that. It's worth emphasizing alongside this increase in, infl in inflation that we're also seeing um, a dispersion of inflation at its highest level that we've seen in quite some time. This is really just to recognize and reiterate the point that there are parts of our economy right now that disruption is significant and we are seeing substantial increases in prices. Um, this chart, to not go into the details, is simply meant to describe um, how prices are evolving on one end of the spectrum versus another end of the spectrum. 
Some prices are, are increasing quite rapidly, while other prices are still quite subdued with economic activity still not recovered to the point where it would have been before the pandemic. So when we say that inflation is still relatively low, uh, it's worth recognizing that the reason it stayed relatively low and stable for the most part is because on average, those prices that are increasing rapidly are being offset by other segments of the economy where prices have still been declining relative to a year ago. So again, um, for people that may recognize some of the disruptions and feeling price pressures, it's all perfectly valid. And this chart highlights that point by recognizing that there's just much more dispersion and variability in terms of price increases that we're seeing today relative to where we would have been before the pandemic and is going to be, a, I think, a crucial piece of information to continue to monitor. I'm gonna offer just a, a couple of concluding thoughts and then uh, Jessica, I'll turn it over to you to, to help facilitate the, the Q&A. Um, last year at this time, agriculture was in the midst of what I think would be fair to say was an emerging crisis. Uh, there was maybe an expectation that we would see some significant increases in bankruptcies, we would see declines in land values and more financial pressure that was building on what had been at that time already a prolonged increase in financial stress in the preceding several years. The reality though is that the, again, the environment has been very, very different. We've seen, seen a significant increase in commodity prices, support from government payments, other uh, support measures in the way of lower interest rates and programs such as PPP that have offered um, numerous places for agriculture to see a recovery. There are still risks though, and, and, I, and I can't overstate these enough as well. Obviously the pandemic and everything that's connected to the pandemic is, is first and foremost. The second, and, and I haven't gone into a lot of detail on this, is the livestock industry. Um, cattle has not seen the same recovery that you've seen in other markets. There are some reasons for that. In parts of our country, uh, the livestock industry is still contending with severe drought. Certainly that's the case in the, in the Western part of Nebraska and as you move further Southwest. Uh, but this also has to do simply with the nature of demand for products connected to livestock. So we still are not seeing, again, restaurant and food service activity to the extent that it would have been prior to the pandemic and still disruptions and supply chain challenges that are connected to that. Uh, this is also going, it's going to be important even just to think about longer term uh, demand and other pressures in livestock that might come from other places such as consumer preferences or environmental sorts of concerns. So I, I offer that as, as a bit of an exception because it, it does differ from the broader economic outlook for agriculture. We know that policy is going to be important and, and I can't go through all of those things that are going to be relevant to policy. I mentioned the environment. Tax policy could be another one in terms of what it might mean. Um, capital gains tax being one example, but corporate taxes potentially being another. And then the last that I wanna leave with is simply longer term economics as a risk. Um, in 2008 and 2009, I think a lot of people felt that the price increases at that time were probably not sustainable, that we would get to a point where producer, producers ultimately would respond with more production. And, and ha as has been the case in agriculture in the past, that ultimately that production would push back against those that level of prices in the longer term. I think that's probably still the general expectation today is that the level of prices we have today are probably not sustainable. Uh, there will be a response in production. Demand will come back into something closer to an equilibrium coming out of the pandemic. And what that probably means is a retreat back to some price level that feels more 
historically normal relative to where we are, are right now. But for the time being, there's there's a lot of volatility and there are profit opportunities for those producers that are considering a, a, a disciplined marketing strategy and, and selling some crop at the time. So Jessica, with that, I'm, I'm gonna, I'll stop my, my comments here, but be glad to take questions if, if there are some. Yep, we do have questions rolling in through the chat box. Just as a reminder, we have about 25 minutes left with Nathan. So if you have any questions, please put them in the chat. Um, one of the questions that came in during his presentation is, will the slides be available? And the answer to that is yes. We will post the slides as well, as well as the recording of today's webinar by noon tomorrow at farm.unl.edu. So you will um, receive an email when those are posted. So first question comes from the chat box and it says, does the pattern of rising prices provide evidence of cost, of cause? Would monetary policy or federal stimulus spending usually cause inflationary pressure more uniformly or are price run-ups more likely to be attributed to the pandemic disruption to supply or both? So, so that, that's a, a, there's a couple of good questions in there and there's probably a, a, a presentation just to answer that, those questions and I'll, I'll try to do a, um, I'll try to give a succinct answer to you know, my thoughts on, on that. I think the first is recognizing this pandemic for the unprecedented nature that it is um, and the policy response then also having been fairly unprecedented both in terms of the coordinated response from monetary policy and fiscal policy, but also the magnitude of support coming from uh, both of those. So what that has meant is so that it's, it's a little bit challenging to compare the past year and some of the response with anything that we may have seen in the past. It's, it's always instructive to try to do some of that, but take it with a grain of salt. One of the things that I think that's, that's important to, to emphasize with that though, is the scale of support and what it's meant for the financial disposition of both businesses and households to continue spending, even in the midst of what otherwise would have been a severe crisis. As we've looked at data, for example, in 2020, um, the actual increase in household saving and income, taking into account all of these support measures, was extremely high. And so even though there had been um, closures of various businesses, and so obviously pressure on those businesses because they're not able to generate revenue in the way that they would have been in the past, households were still spending to a significant extent at that time, but even better positioned to continue to spend because of the savings that were generated from some of those supports going forward. And so we, that's been one of the primary factors that has supported uh, both household spending, but also business investment and spending now that we're at the point where businesses and economies are beginning to reopen. So the answer to that question in short is that yes, I think it's probably both. Um, you know, supply is certainly a factor in always driving price developments. We know that there have been global weather disruptions over the course of the past year at the same time that bottlenecks in various segments of the supply chain would have presented challenges last year and then obviously represent something different as those, as those bottlenecks are resolved. So I think there's probably a decent amount that's attributed to the pandemic disruption. There's, there's some amount that's attributed to China and the strength in that economy and reopening, in addition to what I would say, and as this question points to, the substantial stimulus that came from both fiscal policy as well as monetary policy in the form of lower interest rates that ultimately spurs activity. 
that I think all of those things combined are probably relevant in terms of what's generated this increase. Great, thank you. Um, again, if you have questions, go ahead and place them in the chat or in the Q&A. Our next question is, if there is more inflation pressure or expectations, what are the interest rate expectations and potential pressure on ag borrowers? Yeah, so this is going to be, a, I think, an extremely relevant topic going forward. If you've followed some of the communication coming out of the Federal Reserve or the FOMC, the Federal Open Market Committee, you will hear those officials say that they're not anticipating any increases or significant increases in interest rates, at least to 2023. So that's, that's a couple of years even beyond, I think, what people would expect that the pandemic would persist. And the general reason for that, without going into a lot of details, is simply recognizing that this was a severe crisis and that support should be uh, warranted at least to the point where we see that there's a sustainable increase in momentum for economic activity. The other side to that, of course, though, is what I shared as with respect to inflation. Um, much of that stimulus can continue to the extent that there's not significant and persistent inflationary pressure. If there is persistent inflationary pressure, that, that could cause um, some, of that, some of those decisions to need to be modified, just depending on how uh, that pressure is viewed, specifically as it relates to the persistence of those measures. I'll caution a little bit on some of the inflation data for right now because typically we look at inflation as um, a change from the previous year. And so when we're looking at data from April of 2020 and we're comparing that with a April, 2021, it's maybe not quite the right comparison because April of 2020 was the month that we saw prices collapsing. Some people will remember, for example, that oil prices and futures markets went negative in April of last year. So. I challenge comparing that kind of price uh, relative to a year ago. So, you know, there's some amount of what we're seeing in terms of inflation that's believed to be transient, but there's also a possibility that what we're seeing in terms of the reopening of economies and a return to the kind of economic activity that we would have seen in previous years, that's, that some of it could be more persistent demand strength. So the response that the Fed would have, and, and, uh, and you know, just specifically thinking about uh, interest rates and policy connected to inflation, will have to take into account those developments. Um, my, my personal view is that as it relates to interest rates specifically, they weren't particularly high prior to the pandemic. And for the most part, producers were not depending on the level of interest rates as being a key factor driving the profitability of their business. But that said, we do know that interest rates have broad impacts on the economy. They do often take time to play out. So it's worth, it's worth noting that I think that that's something to follow for the next couple of years. Thank you for that answer. The next question is good news about ag income. What part of that has come from government support versus increased commodity prices? So generally speaking, um, government payments uh, accounted for about 40% of net farm income in 2020. That would have been substantially higher than previous years. Um, but it's worth reminding the audience that this has been a few consecutive years of, of some form of strong government payments, whether it's market facilitation program or the CARES Act or even potentially PPP as part of that. Um, so it was about 40% in terms of direct payments. It's maybe difficult to disentangle what, if any, effect government payments had 
on supporting commodity prices because as I mentioned, you know, those government payments would have supported spending and spending ultimately feeds into how we think about support for commodity prices. But in terms of its direct form, it was about 40%. The next question, again, if you have any questions, we've got about 15 minutes left with Nathan. So make sure that you get those in the chat or in the Q&A. The next question is just curious about your thoughts on the risks of relying on one country, China, as a key market for agricultural commodities. Yeah, so I mean, my general view on this would be, I think that it's probably always best to have a relatively diverse base of demand for products. And um, whether it's China or whether it's another country, um, I think that it would be beneficial to consider what might be required to ensure that there's strength of demand growth from a broad set of sources. China is obviously crucial just by way of its size and its growth in the past. We do know that China is aging. Um, its population is aging faster than most other places. So the demographics in China are going to play out in the not too distant future. And that's totally irrespective of any policy developments or discussions that might be on top of that. Again, we all remember 2018 and 19 and the challenges of trade disputes at that time and, and ultimately what that might mean um, even going forward now. And so I think that while it's, it's, it's worth, again, um, you know, recognizing that China is going to be an important part of uh, export strength for US ag products, uh, it's probably still worth considering where they, there may be other options for value-added ag exports that can help drive profitability for producers in the United States with, as the question noted, um, the risk of, of relying on just one market. Our next question is, please go back to the goods PCE inflation chart and speculate on the coming months, including commodities. Well, I'll, I'll do my best to refrain from speculating too much on where price increases may lie, because um, I think if any of us were trying to make forecasts as it forecasts a year ago with these prices, we would have been proven as wrong as we've ever been in our career. Um, with that said, I, you know, again, it's worth noting that the price of some raw materials, and I include uh, ag commodities in this, lumber, steel, um, a number of, of, other, of other items like that, have increased anywhere between 100 to 200 percent. And so those price increases have been pretty dramatic. There have been a couple of general um, contributing factors to that. And, and ag, I'll, I'll, I'll say it even more general than just agriculture. In the initial months of the pandemic, there was an expectation, again, that, that activity would decline. And so a number of these firms may have scaled back production at least temporarily until they had a clearer picture of what was going to emerge from the pandemic. With the increase in spending power that happened in the months after though, uh, demand for many of those products actually continued to be very, very strong. Um, again, even China and its reopening and its demand for ag products would be part of that. So to some extent, those that production, and again, lumber or steel or other things couldn't, couldn't expand fast enough to catch up with the demand of what was happening at the time. As we've, as we've moved forward, much of that demand has still persisted. Uh, consumers have still been in a, in a solid place to spend. Whether that persists going forward, I, I think is still remain to be seen. I do think that uh, whatever forecast I would try to make, and I'm not gonna give a, a, a number in this, 
is probably going to depend on how strong the labor market is going forward and how well positioned households are um, for employment. Um, for the most part, that's been relatively strong. And in fact, a lot of businesses that we would talk to would say, part of the reason that prices are increasing is simply because they, they don't have enough people to operate to meet the demand that's out there. So I think that much of the of what you'll see as it relates to inflationary pressures will probably also still be connected to the labor market and how well positioned households are to spend. Um, I, again, I think that there's probably some amount of what we're seeing in inflation that's transient, but based on some of the persistent strength in the economy and, and labor markets in general, it also seems um, justifiable to suggest that some amount of that might persist in the months ahead. So that's far short of a forecast, but probably deliberate. Our next question is, any thoughts on the live cattle price versus wholesale slash retail, or in other words, packer margins? This was a major issue last year, uh, again, because of the bottlenecks and the disruptions at meatpacking plants. Um, when they were operating at reduced capacity, it meant that um, livestock operations, for example, had fewer options to sell animals and ultimately lower demand means lower prices. But at the same time, less product coming out of those meatpacking plants meant higher prices at retail. What we've been seeing now is still some of those pressures um, existing, similar to all of the other supply chain disruptions that we've been talking about. But for the most part, those disruptions have been largely resolved. Um, processing plants, for the most part, are back to where they would have been in terms of production before the pandemic. Um, but they're still, but we're still dealing with changes in the nature of demand for various products. So even though some parts of the supply chain have recovered to where they were, it doesn't necessarily mean that prices overall are back to where they were and growing at a similar rate because the nature of demand has still changed. And, and we're all kind of waiting to see how that plays out and if there's a return to something more normal. Um, I mean, just to give a very, you know, an example that may seem tangential, uh, you know, downtown areas are not at the same level of activity that you would see in suburban areas, um, just by nature of where people are working, how they're moving, and it's different than what we would have seen before the pandemic. And so it's natural to think that of that as being a disruption that could still have implications until we get back to something that seems like it's maybe more steady for a long term. All right, our next question is, did high feed prices around 2010 result in decreased livestock production? If so, would we expect such a decrease as a result of this run? Yeah, going back to 2010, and then, and then if we even include 2011, which was a severe drought in the Southern part of the United States, and then continuing to the nationwide severe drought in 2012, you can look at all of those years, which were again, increases in prices, feed prices being one example, that led to a pretty significant reduction in livestock inventories at that time. So whether that's because of drought or increased feed costs or those being related to each other, it ultimately meant, to, meant a liquidation in herds uh, to a significant extent and increases in those inventories that didn't really begin until a few years after. So that there tend to be longer cycles in the livestock sector just by nature of how that industry operates. Um, and so increases in costs do tend to generate lower um, inventories or lower a, a, a smaller number of herd, a herd for example, um, supplies generally speaking. 
that take a couple of years to get to the point where as those costs start to moderate that you would see an increase in, in a response to that. So in the past, what this has meant is relatively long-term cycles in prices. Um, lower prices means reduction in supplies and then eventually those lower supplies lead to a recovery in prices. The point that I made earlier though, is that some of this is going to need to be balanced against what we see as longer term drivers of fundamentals. In the cattle market specifically, the primary competitor has come from pork and poultry products over a very long time horizon. So per capita beef consumption, even though it's been you know, relatively strong for the most part, the growth has not been there. And now we're adding, for example, things like alternative meats and we're adding potentially other environmental sorts of concerns. So I note those as longer term pressures that could also now disrupt what would have previously been what we'd expect to see in a cycle. Um, so it's, I think the general intuition is yes, you know, in terms of the answer to the question, um, but balanced against what still is a, a very uncertain outcome for, you know, the next several years in terms of demand. Next question is thoughts on a year of lost education in most of the U.S. and its future impacts. Well, I appreciate that question and it's very different from, you know, a conversation in agriculture, but I think that it, it goes to the nature of um, a lot of the other disruptions that we've been talking about. Uh, you know, last year at this time, a lot of our kids were learning from home where they were able um, and have spent the better part of a year um, in a what I would still call a, a relatively disrupted environment. I know that it differs on region and it differs differs from you know city to, to more rural locations as well. Um, but I think that it's worth highlighting there that for a lot of people it's been it's been a challenging time both as a teacher and as a student to think about um, you know what that looks like in, in preserving education. So, I don't have any great answers to it. I'm sure there's a lot of smarter people than I am in trying to figure out what that looks like. But I think at a at a high level and at a glance, um, I think that it has generated some concerns about how some students might be positioned for education relative to others in that online environment. Um, and then going back to something that might feel more normal, uh, you know, going one step further, it's even that much more exacerbated on a global level and not just the United States when you think about developing countries that don't have access to the same sorts of resources. So I, I do think that education is a pretty key part in driving um, the skill sets that are required for all of the labor shortages that we hear from businesses across the country and figuring out the best way forward for education, I think is going to be important over the long term. Uh, so not necessarily a specific ag topic, but I think it, it connects in a broader sense. All right, we are coming to the end of our time together and we probably have room for one more question. So if you have a question, um, please make sure that you get it in the chat box. Just as a reminder, this session is being recorded and you will be able to watch the replay. It will be posted at farm.unl.edu by noon tomorrow and you will also receive an email um, with uh, when we have posted um, that webinar. So I'll put that uh, in the chat for everybody. So Nathan, any final thoughts that you would like to share while we wait for our last question to come in? Uh, I would just reiterate again, my thanks for being able to participate in this. Uh, we, we really value being able to interact with people also and, and take these questions. It is helpful, like I said at the beginning. Um, looking forward to the time when we can do some of this in person and, and be able to have some of the sidebar conversations as well. But still, while we're able to leverage the technology that we can, appreciate being able to join for this. 
All right, well, I don't see another question in the chat box. So I wanna thank everybody for joining us today. A recording of this webinar will be posted at farm.unl.edu where you can also register for our other upcoming webinars, which usually happen on Thursdays at noon. As a reminder, check farm.unl.edu for a schedule of more webinars in our series. Joining us next Thursday um, will be a look at benchmarking and profitability for beef operations. You will be receiving a short survey in your email, and we would really appreciate your feedback on today's webinar, as well as input on future sessions. Thanks again for joining us. This has been a special Nebraska Farmcast presentation of Extension Farm and Ranch Management in the Department of Agricultural Economics at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. To view or listen to more archived webinars, register for upcoming sessions, and discover more timely news, analysis, decision tools, and publications to guide your decision-making, visit farm.unl.edu.